every day of our lives, and especially as we come together and, uh, and be led by our, our music uh, team and the effort and, and work they put, it's, it's, it's fantastic, it's amazing. We're going to be uh, talking this morning, our subject is Refine by Fire, from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 30, and this is part 5 in our series in the book of Daniel. We recall that last week we dealt with Nebuchadnezzar's troubling dream and the interpretation he received by God through Daniel. And it wasn't just any dream, but in fact it was a remarkable prophecy with far-reaching historical significance. The implication of the dream is that while all the kingdoms come and go, there will come a remarkable kingdom. It is represented by a stone that is not cut by human hands, so powerful, eternal, that it will smash all the others into insignificance. That stone is our Lord Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the capstone, the the, the rock on which the church, we, are built. Now the story before us is is quite well known, but it's not meant to be just a a story for for children in Sunday school, right? It is a true story that happened 2,600 years ago. I say that because there are commentaries and other stuff that I've read that they say, well, the story doesn't have to be true for it to impact our lives. We just have to take the spiritual significance. No, it's a true story. This happened, okay? And it's been repeated many times since in different ways, with varied intensity, in different forms. A small detail here is that Daniel does not appear in this incident and no reason is given. At the same time, the other three boys don't appear in the lion's den incident in Chapter 6, only Daniel. So it's probably, we're not going to waste time speculating on the silence because we simply don't know why this is the case. Let's look, first of all, the setup, verses 1 to 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. The Proportions sort of don't work too well unless you sort of realise that it's probably put on a pedestal that was a bit high. And he set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then in verse 7, Therefore as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the sitter, the lyre, the harp and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, in trying to understand what's going on here, we, we, we will highlight a couple of things. Firstly, reverse Babel. Babel is another name for Babylon. It's interesting that this passage in Daniel contains some parallels to the event of the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11. In the first chapter of Daniel, we are told that the exiles of Israel are in the land of Shinar, some 
versions have Shina, other versions have Babylon in, in chapter 1 verse 2. What happened there? That's where the Tower of Babel, the event, took place. Genesis 11 chapter, two, uh, chapter 11 verse 2. There they embark on this building project, a tower that reaches to the heavens, wanting to make a, a name for themselves, that is the purpose, and not be scattered to defy God's decree to fill the earth and subdue it. They wanted to concentrate the power in one place. And here we are told a few times that the people who are gathered are from different languages and different nations. The Babylonian Empire was broad and wide and big, powerful. It's as if King Nebuchadnezzar is bringing together in Babylon the groups that were scattered at the old Babel in order to redo, in a sense, what was undone there. He wants to continue with the project. He's aiming to bring unity out of the diversity under his dominion. What better way to bring people together than under the guise of some form of centralised worship, a common religion and a culture that goes with it. And and in bringing people together, you need to exclude all all possible sources of division and disintegration. There is no room for dissent, liberty of conscience, freedom of worship. It all has to be uniform. It has to be directed. It has to be concentrated, centralised. In the first seven verses we are told at least half a dozen times that he set up, set up this image. And whatever this image looked like, it's an image that is designed to represent Nebuchadnezzar's rule, power, glory, reign. It's a symbol to represent his own greatness and draw attention to his own glory. It has it all, including the call to worship, the worship music, to draw people together. Secondly, the second purpose I see here is that he's reversing the dream that we saw in the last chapter. It looks like he's trying to set up a counter image to the one he saw in his dream in chapter 2. In in the image in his dream, only the head of gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar makes a big imposing image entirely of gold. Before it was just the head that was gold. Now he wants the rest of the image to be gold as well. It appears that he's trying to overturn God's decree and ensure that the power, influence, glory of his kingdom would not be shattered and scattered, but that it will continue through the ages. He's fighting God's prophecy, God's decree. 
Now, as, as foolish as this act of idolatry is, it is in fact the way that our society actually works. How many of us have idolised our careers, our cars, our houses, our gardens, our image, yes, even our kids? We, we fool ourselves into, into somehow thinking that these idols can, can settle the, the, the emptiness, the, the restlessness of our wandering hearts. If only we can find something that we, to which we can dedicate ourselves to, to which we can pour our efforts and work overtime and, 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 and seek to keep it and, and make it bigger and, and, and continue on. Find some security in, in that. Yes, it's normal, encouraged, even enforced, because everybody else is doing it. We come, believe, we come to believe in our heart of hearts that these things can actually deliver what they promise. They can give us the joy. Did you stop and think that we are being set up ourselves to depend on these things rather than on God? Job had all these things taken away from him, including his kids, including his health. In the end, oh, even his wife, uh, she wasn't much help. It was just between him and God because his friends didn't really help. Remember, and, and he was a good man. And remember, please, please, it's okay to own things as long as things don't own you. For this reason, Jesus said to us, Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, verses 30 to 33. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, remember that word, fire? Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Who are the pagans? They are everybody else. That's society. That's the world we live in. They run after all these things. And your heavenly father, you, however, have a heavenly father. You, you worship the, the Lord. You recognize him. He owns you. And, and he knows that you need them. But here is the thing. Seek first his kingdom his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And all these other things are only going to be there for, for a little while, because eventually you're going to have to let it go anyway. Verses 8 to 18, we see resistance. Verse 8, 
At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Verse 12, But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shirak, Meshach and Abednego, who pay now attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold. You have set up, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you on this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These boys knew the difference. We already saw that, chapter 1, chapter 2. These boys knew the difference between respecting and worshipping the state. There is a separation here. It's very clear. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar had been established by God did not make Nebuchadnezzar God. You got that? The fact that God raises up rulers does not make rulers autonomous with unlimited power. On the contrary, it limits their power for they are responsible and will be accountable one day to the one who set them up in the first place. Whether they acknowledge him as God or not, justice will come. And despite what they tell you, not everybody is doing it. I, I shudder at the, some of the headlines now on, in social media from newspapers and you go to, for example, news.com.au and, and suddenly, you know, it's something happening in cricket. Somebody takes a, a great catch in cricket. Okay? I like cricket. And, and the headline is, World in Awe after catch the world people in South America don't feel like cricket Africa some the world are you serious why do you have to use these stupid superlatives all the time and there I am using another superlative why just say good catch great catch don't say the world Not everybody's following. Not everybody is, is, is doing it. We don't know how many more are out there. We know at least one more is out there, that's Daniel. But here we have at least Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't participating in worshipping the image of gold. It appears that they are sticking to their convictions and worshipping only their God. Before, remember that they resolved not to eat the food from the king's table. 
and favourably negotiated that situation after a test and all of this, it's all good. Here, the intensity is much greater. There is no bargaining room. There is no possibility to negotiate. But if they didn't stand up then for their convictions, they would not be able to stand up now when the stakes are higher. You know what I'm saying, right? You have to win the small battles in order to prepare yourselves for the bigger one. That's a training ground. This is serious. Before, it was a matter of diet, eating carrots and kale, okay? Now, it's bowing down before an image of gold. And it's not as if they, they, they shouted their objection to these rules from the rooftops. They didn't go on social media and tell them, I'm not doing this. No, they just went along. Their daily normal lives, but it didn't matter. They still got caught because the enemy will seek to draw genuine believers out in order to make a spectacle. They have to make a point out of our convictions. That's how the enemy works. I think we all remember the the mandates during the recent pandemic, the COVID pandemic, right? One after the other. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the US, Europe. I think in Australia here, in New South Wales, in our state, I think one of the lowest moments of the pandemic was when the health minister was encouraging people to dob in their neighbours who were not complying with the regulations. Just think about that, okay? Just think about that. You're snooping out the... Oh, there's Betty. She's outside without a mask. The dog hasn't got a mask either. Hmm. You know, uh, my neighbour... Yeah. There's three people outside. There should only be two. This is how stupid it was. Now, when the whole thing is over, as it is now, I think, mostly, how do you think those neighbours get along? Right? Hey, Betty, come over for a barbecue, eh? Just to celebrate the end of COVID. Yeah. Neighbourhood watch. Remember we used to have that? It was caring for one another, protecting Vulnerable people and all the neighbourhood watch. This is not neighbourhood watch. Well, it is, but it's a whole different thing. And we just soaked it in and said, oh, you're anti-vaccination, aren't you, pastor? We had that comment on our village. So I wasn't. I just had people, it's fine. If you want to come to church, vaccinated, unvaccinated, I don't care. It's your conviction. It's your personal conviction, Okay. I'm not going to let, I'm not going to stop between you and God. Please, let's respect our convictions.
Same thing is happening here when it says some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. There must have been a hotline, right? There was a hotline saying, okay, those who do not bow, ring. And these astrologers probably had an axe to grind because they were upstaged by Daniel when they couldn't interpret the dream, remember? While Daniel and his friends got rewarded and promoted, they didn't. So forget the fact that Daniel had previously pled for the lives of these men to be spared. What happened to that? You know, no, forget all that. We're on to a different time now. Isn't this, this exactly how the workplace politics tends to work as well? The day may come. And I don't think it's far away when witnessing for Christ to your classmates, to your workers, to your neighbours is going to be considered a hate crime. It's getting close. There's already legislation coming before Parliament, before the the Law Reform Commission, that this is a religious school, right? Right? that the school will not be able to dictate who can be teachers or who can't. That they will have to teach material which is contrary to the belief, the very reason why these schools were set up as independent schools. They will be forced to teach a curriculum and they will be forced to employ people who do not hold the values of the school. That's the law that is before us. It's going to be considered. Predictably, Nebuchadnezzar, let's call him Neb, is furious upon hearing that there are some in his kingdom who do not agree with his command to worship. So he approaches Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and gives them one last chance to recant, to fall down and to worship the image. Most will be thinking, oh, come on, mate, you know, it's not a big deal, all right? Surely you can continue your influential work in the provinces. Look at what position you reach here. Surely you don't want to give all that up for something as silly as this. Simply comply with a mandate. Do what they tell you. It's nothing. What's wrong with worshipping the statue and your God at the same time? Huh? Who cares? We don't. Just do what they tell you. And, and here is one of those precious nuggets of scripture that I love. And I, from time to time I highlight these for you just so you can, you can, you know, if, if you have your Bible in front of you, I want you to highlight it. It says this, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But even if he does not, that's precious. This is a golden nugget of biblical truth right there. Whether it's God's plan to deliver them or not, they are determined not to break the first and the second commandment. Not to worship other gods. 
they entrust, they fully entrust their fate in God's hands, whatever the result. Very important. You see this principle played out in the, in, certainly in the book of Job, in other parts of the scriptures as well. Let's go to the book of Job. At the beginning of the book of Job, you probably know how the story goes. Uh, it, it opens up, the book opens up with, with God's declaration about Job to Satan. There is no one, this is what God says about Job, his servant on earth. He says, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? In other words, haven't you protected him? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Let me ask you, is Satan right? Do we believe and worship God because of the benefits or blessings he confers on us, his children? What happens when we go through hard times and it seems to us that his blessings have dried up and God appears distant and silent, which is a a common prayer in some of the, the Psalms, right? Will we still trust him? Or are we simply like everyone else, simply fair weather Christians? those who follow God when the sun is shining. I would have to say that if your God, if your version of God is a a genie, you know, give it a rub and he grants you three wishes, if your God is like that, then you probably are a fair weather Christian. Or just another version of Santa Claus. If, If that's your version of God, then Satan is right. But if God says no to your cherished dreams and your hopes, will you still trust him? If God smashes your plans for the future and your house is taken away and your job and your family, will you still serve him? Is our faith mature enough to say yes God can heal my child, but even if he doesn't, he is still God. I will still follow him. I will still serve him. I will still love him. Can you say that? God is able. More than able. But if he does not, in this instance, I will still love and worship him. 
And then we have judgment in verses 19 to 23. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Verse 23, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. You know, it's no use bringing a universal law like the one that Nebuchadnezzar brought, that, you know, uniform worship, unless there is a fear factor tied to it, a deterrent for disobedience. For the Romans, what was their deterrent? The the Romans used the cross. For the Babylonians here, it was a furnace. It seems way over the top, right? But the furnace was there only to deter the possible, you know, lunatic fringe of antisocial behaviour. Those who refused to comply to the mandates. Those who refused to get vaccinated. It was an object of fear and terror with the hope that it would never have to be used. And yet here we are. Nebuchadnezzar summoned them and gave them one last chance to recant, but they refused. The only thing left to do was now to carry out the sentence. The radiated heat was so hot, so hot that even those soldiers who were throwing them in, they were killed. But the lives of these soldiers didn't matter. They are cannon fodder, as they say. They were expendable. They would be replaced by others because life was cheap, as it is in many parts of the world. What matters is that the, the, the people, what the people did, what they were told, and they had to obey the king, and that everybody said, you know what happened back at the furnace? And so fear continues. Do you know that in Hitler's Germany, Jews were brought in from all over Europe on railroads, purposely built to exterminate the Jews? Soldiers will be sent to the front, Jews will be brought back in the wagons and taken straight to these extermination camps with gas chambers, and the ovens. At least they were killed before their bodies were burned in the incinerators because if they're burned, then you don't have to bury them. They just turn to ashes. Six million of them. And the world... I don't know. I suppose that's the reason why many lives were lost, trying to... Make something right. Here these boys were thrown into the fire while still alive. And, and since then, many believers in the centuries and thousands of years and even today have suffered the same fate. Um, not all that long ago, maybe 10, 20 years ago, 
a couple, a missionary couple that had been working in India, Australian couple with their family, they had been working in northern India for decades. They had been there a long time. They, the villagers came, they were in their four-wheel drive and they were set alight while still in their car. You know the story. Martyred for their faith. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, was a disciple of the Apostle John. When they arrested him, he said, God's will be done. They threatened him with lions and fire if he didn't recant. And he replied, You threaten me with the fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you want. (laughs) And they burned him at the stake in front of a crowd who was baying for his blood. Peter wrote to the persecuted church in Peter 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 In all this you greatly rejoice though for now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's beautiful, isn't it? That was, that was read at uh, Elizabeth's dad's uh, funeral on Friday. Beautiful passage. Now let's look at the deliverance from verses 24 to 30. And he said, look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So suddenly in in, in the midst of the fire, this fourth mysterious person appears, described as the son of the gods. There are a couple of possibilities here. It could have been an angel. It could have been a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ himself. Either way, and I believe it was in pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, either way, it was God's miraculous intervention. The, the truth is that God is present with his people, whatever they face. He is there with you in the hospital bed. He is there in prison with a lot of our fellow believers. He is there when you're going through the difficult times. He's never left you. And he's the only one who can save. But the God of the scriptures does not always do what we want him to do. He doesn't always deliver us physically. He's sovereign and he will do that which brings glory to his name. Consider these mysteries. In Acts chapter 12... The Apostle James was killed with a sword by King Herod. He was the first one to go. 
In the same chapter, Peter was in prison and facing the same fate, yet was miraculously delivered by an angel. Couldn't you do the same? Despite the many prayers, one man gets cancer and dies at the age of 30. Another is healed and lives to be 90. Why? One family is prosperous. Every investment, it just turns to to gold, right? And And they seem to have it all together. Just as godly as them is another family who follow God and yet they can't make ends meet. How can you, right? Well, God did not spare his own son. Why are you any more special? Right? He who did not spare his own son. That should say it for us. And please don't be fooled. Please don't be fooled by the, the heresy of the prosperity gospel that is destroying the faith. It is causing more harm than good. It's destroying the faith of so many people. Nowhere in the Bible does God promise to deliver us from persecution. He doesn't promise that we won't encounter disturbing troubles because of what we believe. He never promises that his people won't experience martyrdom. Just read Hebrews 11. Yes, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were delivered this time. But guess what? They will die like the rest of us soon enough. And don't be like Nebuchadnezzar who at the end of the chapter makes another confession which sounds quite genuine but he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it until the next chapter. You can read all about it and we're going to do it next week. When When God humbles him But in our lives, let us strive to develop a mature, genuine faith, refined by fire, that truly believes and worships the living God. Amen.